The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'd like to talk a little bit um, now about the um, clinging to sense pleasure, the, um, the sense desire teaching of the Atakavaga. So in um, in the Atakavaga, it is very much a teaching on letting go of clinging. Pretty almost every single verse in the Atakavaga has some reference to clinging. So if we just simply look at Sutta 10, that first Sutta we read. Um, Verse 849, who has extinguished all craving with no fixation with what happens. Verse 851, no longing for the future and no grief for the past. Sees detachment from the entangled world. Verse 852, nothing he holds on to without acquisitiveness. Verse 853, not a man who is addicted to pleasure. Verse 854, no craving to build up the passion to taste new pleasures. Verse 856, no craving to exist or not exist. So over and over again, this theme reappears. So that's in terms of the description of someone who is liberated. And it also um, covers what a person, an ordinary person, experiences with respect to sense pleasure. So the very first sutta, the Kama Sutta, the Sutta on Sense Pleasure, It's on page three of your handout. If one longing for sense pleasure achieves it, yes, he's enraptured at heart. The mortal gets what he wants. But if for that person longing, desiring, the pleasures diminish, he's shattered as if shot with an arrow. So this points to the state of the ordinary person that they long for sense pleasures, and when they achieve it, they're happy. It's, it's, we all recognize this. This is not, not something unfamiliar to us. But if for that person the pleasures diminish, he's shattered as if shot by an arrow. So this points to the, um, the impermanence of sense pleasure and how we suffer when our sense pleasure goes away. So that's part of the um, seeing of the, the connection between sense pleasure and suffering, is that the impermanence of sense pleasure in the clinging to it, we suffer. So here he goes on, whoever avoids sense desires, as he would with his foot the head of a snake, goes beyond mindful this attachment in the world. Now here, he's not simply saying, oh, sense pleasures are okay, um, just don't get attached to them. He's actually suggesting putting yourself, I think somebody even said it earlier. Oh, I think Roseanne said it. If you put yourself in the place of sense pleasure, it's hard not to be attached. So he's actually recommending avoiding sense. Well, here, it's, here the translation is sense desires. Whoever avoids, avoids sense desires. So that is the, the clinging piece, but I don't in many places in, in going through these texts, I looked at various translations of particular words. So let me just look and see what, 
um, how Verado translates that. 768. Sense pleasures. Verado translates this as sense pleasures. That would be an interesting thing um, to check with someone who knows Pali. Does it actually incorporate the clinging aspect to it, or is it saying avoid the sense pleasures entirely? Kama is, um, it says, I've got the Pali here. It says, Kama, Kame, Kame, Parivajita. So I'm not sure if there's some, you know, extra piece to it. Unfortunately, not being a Pali scholar. So here I think he is recommending that um, we, get t- we get caught into sense pleasure. A man who is greedy for field, land, gold, cattle, horses, servants, employees, women, relatives, many sensual pleasures, is overpowered with weakness and is trampled by trouble. For pain invades him as water a cracked boat. Again, pointing to the fact that as if you have all these accumulations, you have to hold on to them. There's a way in which we, we want to hold on to them. And that that is compared to a cracked boat so that the, um, the, the leaking in of the, I mean, you can float for a while, you know, you can float for a while, but the pain seeps through the cracks. I love the analogies the Buddha uses. They, they, they actually are very apropos. One other piece I want to just say as a caveat, um, every single translation that I looked at uses he in describing the person. Occasionally one, um, mostly it's he. It's my understanding um, that the poly itself is gender neutral. So we can replace it with she, but I did not take the time to go through and kind of intersperse she with he. So I hope that's okay for everybody. I I know that um, it sometimes gets a little heavy hearing he, he, he all the time, particularly if you're a woman. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's it. We can replace she and all the liberated ones and he and all the... So one always mindful should avoid sense desires, letting them go, he'd cross over the flood, like one having bailed out the boat has reached the far shore. So again, comparing the, using the analogy of crossing over and that essentially letting go of sense desire is like repairing the the boat. We're no longer seeped in with this suffering. The suffering doesn't seep in anymore. So again, this is very this worldly. 
Now, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the terms in here that, um, like, reach the far shore. Um, but it, again, in general, it's talking about the suffering in this life of craving and going beyond attachment in the world. It goes beyond this attachment in the world. Uh, we want to discuss this, but it just I'm thinking a lot about how um, living in this world without since you know, kind of avoiding such pleasure, avoiding material, the material world doesn't look very um, like a happy place either. Um, so, I mean, I'm thinking about the early uh, certain Christian sects that said no to everything, the Puritans and, and, and different people, and it's not sustainable after a while because people don't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so I'm wondering about balance or like really where the transcendence comes so that you, Gil keeps using this phrase where you find a higher happiness or mm-hmm. a better mm-hmm. happiness or something. Um, his words exactly. But if you, you know, if you're not in that place, then this other kind of really restricted world when you're saying no to so much that gives people enjoyment in life, um, it's not sustainable, I don't think. Well, I think, again, um, well, there's another teaching that I love on sense pleasure, and it talks about recognizing the gratification, the danger, and the escape from sense pleasure. And that, I think, is really the the... the clearest teaching that the Buddha has on sense pleasure. He acknowledges the gratification that people get from sense pleasure and that we have to understand that part of it. That actually it's through the understanding of the gratification that we begin to see the danger. It's through the understanding of how we are gratified by getting things that we like that we see the danger in in that clinging. So in that teaching, he doesn't recommend skipping over the understanding of the gratification. So, you know, it's possible. I don't know, you know, who the, the Buddha often taught provisional teachings. He taught to an audience. He taught, you know, so, so the teachings are directed to who he's speaking to. So he gave different teachings to lay people and to um, bhikkhus at times. So, you know, this teaching... I don't know, you know, it, it, I think this is a, uh, something for us each to explore in our own experience. And if we're finding that um, we're avoiding sense pleasure through an aversion, that is equally unskillful. So, you know, it's, um, it's more about understanding sense pleasure. And here it does talk about avoiding. So, you know, this is a this is one of those texts that we have to kind of 
explore. Yeah, Tony, and then I, Steve. I see the difference between translating. Oh, why don't we use the, sorry. The between translating that as sense. Pleasures and sensual desires. It is. It, that is the pleasant difference. pleasant experience arises right. um, unbidden, and so does unpleasant experience. But the desire is something... Um, I mean, that's what we're what we're addressing. Exactly. And yeah. so it's avoiding the desires. It's like if you've got a gambling addiction, don't go hang out in a casino. Let's see what Norman says. If Gil says he's got the, the most language, the best language, let's see. This is one. Norman translates it as sense pleasure. Sense pleasure. So, Steve. Yeah, you got to be careful about a lot of the sutras. A lot of me is the Buddha is speaking to the monks and nuns who have taken a lot more vows than than the lay people. He, the teachers given to lay people. He, he, he said you know, it's okay to have money and wealth as long as you earn it honestly and you're charitable. They gave instructions and how to be a father and a husband and a wife and an employer and employee. The thing is, um, and a lot of the teachers say it here, is what we have here with people's practices is something in between the two. So it's really like an experiment. We're all working it out as we go along, figuring out the best way to practice for us. I'd like to continue on your line of uh, the previous speaker uh, or questioner uh, regarding balance. And, and I, I think uh, that uh, <coughs> clinging <coughs> uh, can uh, uh, connote uh, uh, contradictions in, in how we should go or how we approach life, how we live life. Uh, unless if we think of it in terms maybe for me uh, in as it being inseparable from the concept of of uh, impermanence uh, and that things arise and pass or arise and fall and and that uh, we can partake with uh, the uh, sense uh, things of sense pleasure and uh, other uh, uh, themes of, of uh, clinging uh, but it's when we don't take a middle way uh, as Buddha suggested that we lose that balance and we don't seem to uh, uh, maintain a flexibility if we go if we uh, desire more of what is pleasurable uh, then it becomes addictive mm-hmm. I think there's many different ways the middle way is interpreted um, but one of the ways it is interpreted is as a middle way between um, essentially holding on to, to sense pleasure and essentially pushing away sense pleasure. So it is, that is one of the ways in which it is seen as a middle way. Did you have one? Yes. Uh, when, we, when you were <clears throat> talking earlier about who, who the audience for this may have been, I was noticing that the two of the four clingings that were absent were the, 
that you mentioned earlier were the clinging to rites and rituals and clinging to identity. So I'm wondering if this might have been for people who were already stream enters. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And in fact, that one thing I, I have heard that Tan Jeff Gill told me that Tan Jeff, I haven't heard this directly from him. He thinks this entire text is a provisional teaching for someone who's ready to become awakened. The entire Ataka Bhaga, he thinks, is uh, is provisional for somebody who's essentially right at the edge of awakening. And I don't think I completely believe that because some of the trainings talked about talk about some very basic things like don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. <laughs> you know, so it's it's hard to say that that kind of training would be directed to someone right at the edge, but. Um, it's another thing to look at that perhaps some of these teachings that are more. I think also if we look at this as being an early teaching of the Buddha, I think he did get more sensitive potentially over time to who he was talking to. And, you know, some of these elaborations like the teaching on sense pleasure, you know, look at the gratification, the danger, the escape. That is a is kind of a um, it's essentially a commentary. I think the whole the whole um path of what the Buddha taught over 45 years. We were fortunate he taught for so many years. He kept, I think he kept commentating on his own teachings and clarifying, clarifying and clarifying. So we have that, um, that possibility of using some of the later teachings. Although we'll see later how that can kind of look a little odd <laughs> as we try to overlay some of the later teachings on some of the earlier teachings. The, the mic. I just want. I just noticed this phrase "enraptured at heart," and it's. It reminds me that we don't really know what necessarily was implied by the word "kama." I mean, it it might it has more to it. It's not the same word as "pleasant," is it? No, no. So, pleasant I mean, is super. describing the teachings that things are pleasant or unpleasant, and they just keep arising and passing, and pleasant or unpleasant. That's a, a lighter weight kind of thing than comma itself. That's so true. So even if we translate it as pleasure, it's already got some of that. Some kind clinging of, to some it. Some kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, enrapturing in it. I, that's that's an excellent point. That the the sense pleasure itself may already. It's kind of like that preferences thing we were talking about earlier. The sense pleasure may already have that embedded in it. I mean, that's where the word gratification is more. It got that little kind of scratching and itch feeling to mm-hmm. it. It's different than mm-hmm. just something pleasant going by. That's true. It is definitely not saying, um, it's not using the term for pleasant as in the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral in this. So the next sutta uh, sutta number two. Now, this one I, I did a little bit more um, looking at some of the art, um, alternative translations as I went through it. So we'll just look at a few of these verses. Uh, in the first verse, he points to um, how hard it is. A person embedded in the cave of sensual reminiscence, where many things remain deeply hidden, shrouded in bewilderment, is far from true seclusion. The pleasures of the world are not easily forsaken. So this is pointing to um, 
I think it's interesting because often we talk about becoming secluded by going off to a cave, and here he's equating the cave with being embedded in the sensual pleasures. So that's that is um, again the there was a the, the, the seclusion we talked about earlier. Seclusion amidst amidst sense contact is what the true seclusion is that he's talking about. Those bound by desire in bondage to the pleasure of existence are not easily released, for there's no freedom when involved with another. Now that phrase kind of piqued my interest. He went involved with another. And so looking at the other translations for this, um, Norman's translation reads, and it's at the bottom of your page here, having desire as their fetter bound to the pleasures of existence, people are hard to release and indeed cannot be released by others. And to me, that has a completely different sense to it. That goes back to the Buddha's teaching of the, the Buddha's point the way we can only we, we can only free ourselves, that that is more what this is pointing to in Norman's translation, whereas in Verado's translation, it's a little more ambiguous about whether it's talking about relationship or not. Longing for what's over or what's to come, yearning for pleasures in the present and pleasures of the past, those who are greedy for pleasure, hunting for it, deranged, selfish, are bent on what is morally wrong. And again, morally wrong is an interesting term here. Um, and Tan Jeff's translation of that is entrenched in the out-of-tune way. And I like that because it's, it's pointing to the fact that when we are clinging to sense pleasure. We are not in tune with the way things really are. Essentially, when we're clinging to sense pleasure, we're out of tune with the fact that we are going to suffer from that clinging. When we say commentary, is that... Is that uh, I'm sorry, it's not commentary. It's the next line, uh, right below normal things, say commentary points to... Oh, oh, yes, yeah. That, is that uh, what it Oh, gee. Um, I can't remember. I'd have to look it up again where I got that from. Um, it might be Buddha Gosha. Is Buddha Gosha. Did you look at that thing you mentioned in the beginning that there's commentary on this? You know, it doesn't have an easy English translation. So I got most of my information about that from. This book, which is another book that's interesting if you want to study this text, it's called Desire, Death, and Goodness uh, by Grace Burford. And it's, it's published by Amazon, so it's not too expensive. It's probably a $25 book or something like that. But it's basically her Ph.D. thesis on the text. Um, and it, it goes through chunks of the, of the, um, of the Mahanidesa. But I couldn't find... A, and uh, a translation of that that was easy to come by. So Norman's um, translation of the um, of that term is have entered upon the wrong road. And again, this is pointing to the fact that the road the road leading towards suffering or the path it's it's an analogy of the path the path leading towards suffering or the path leading towards freedom from suffering, that clinging to views is more around 
what's, again, what's skillful and unskillful in terms of leading us away from suffering or towards freedom from suffering. So the morally wrong part, I, I feel like that might be a little, a little strong in a way. You know, it's in terms of if we think of what we usually mean by ethical conduct in the world of um, killing, stealing, etc., that the clinging to sense pleasure, we can still be moral, we can still have ethical conduct and not kill people, not steal, but we are still on the wrong road. We're still out of tune with the way things truly are. So verse 777, look at them floundering amidst their cherished possessions like fish in a dwindling stream. Having watched this, you should live without feelings of ownership. You should free yourself of attachment to life. And again, this is an interesting phrase to look at, attachment to life. Well, I look at the other translations. I wanted to look at the other translations to see how other other ways it was translated. And Tan Jeff translates this whole um, verse as, see them floundering in their sense of mine, like fish in the puddles of a dried up stream, and seeing this live with no mine, not forming attachments to states of becoming. So again, that... And I believe this is more accurate to the poly because the the poly for life, I think, I mean, the, tr- the poly that's being translated is bhava, I believe, which is um, becoming existence. And it is, um, bhavesu, so it's related to bhava, the becoming. And there's, you know, different interpretations of that term, bhava, becoming. It can mean the becoming into an identity here and now. It can mean the becoming into the next existence. So um, freeing from attachment to becoming is how I would, I would read that, that statement as opposed to life. But... And again, I think it's very interesting to read all the different translations because they can sometimes, you know, knock your mind or jar you. You know, it's like a little bit of a shake up to, to read, free yourself of attachment to life. It's like, what does he mean by that? So it's, you know, I like I like to take these things in and to um, see how they resonate and what how I understand these things. The next verse you should subdue desire for both earthly and heavenly rebirth. Now, this this is a place where it possibly refers to rebirth. You should avoid, you should understand sense contact. A wise person is free of greed. He does nothing for which he would blame himself. He is not soiled by what he sees or hears. So here, it's I like this verse because it's talking about understanding. It's talking about looking at what sense contact is and understanding it. And this, I think, is the precursor to that study of the gratification, uh, understanding the gratification of sense pleasure. So understanding sense contact, as we begin to understand how sense contact works, we see it come in, we see it impinge us, we see the pleasant, the unpleasant, and we see the liking, the not liking, and the 
aversion and greed that result off of that. So we begin to understand how the whole process unfolds as we understand sense contact. And pointing further to this, he is not soiled by what he sees or hears. That's, you know, really beginning to understand sense contact. Uh, that's the direction it heads us, that we are not, as he uses, soiled by what he sees or hears. Tan Jeffs translate that as does not hear, adhere to, and Norman translates this as does not cling to what is seen or heard. So I, I really uh, like this focus on understanding sense contact. And in the next verse, talking about comprehending the nature of perception, that going the next step, essentially, because whatever comes into our senses becomes perceived, becomes recognized in some way. And I'll talk quite a bit more about perception and this teaching this afternoon. But I think this this points to, in this teaching, it goes a little bit further into the training on sense pleasure. The first one kind of talked about um, what the consequences of clinging to sense pleasure. And this one is talking a little bit more about how do we work with it. Understand sense contact. Comprehend perception. Those are the two pieces that are really pointed to here using our mindfulness. So just as a little bit of summary of what we've talked of so far, the Ataka Vaga has a very this-worldly emphasis on how to experience freedom from clinging. The nature of desire and attachment form the main part of the teaching. And another piece that I haven't mentioned too much here is that a lot of the training, actually, a lot of the training offered throughout the um, texts is about modeling the behavior of people who are free. That that's one of the kind of um, ways in which it is taught. And again, we'll talk a little more about that this afternoon. But the, um, the training is very much to see how people who are liberated behave and then to strive to behave in that way. So someone who is liberated is not attached to sense pleasures, is not attached. So we try to model that behavior by um, avoiding the attachment to sense pleasure or recognizing the attachment to sense pleasure. And the implied um, connection is that by avoiding certain behaviors and cultivating others, it it begins to undermine the clinging. It begins to, to somehow allow us to let go of the clinging the, and the desire to create attachment. Oh, okay, well, let's move on. <laughs> So I'd like to, to talk a little bit now, go into some of the teaching on views. We're going to skip the 
text on page six, page five. So views as a object of clinging are kind of singled out for special treatment in the Atakavaga. And clinging to views is, is understood to be one of the most the ways we most often end up winding ourselves into suffering. It's one of the key ways that we end up suffering is through this clinging to views and how we end up in conflict with others. Over and over again, one of the drawbacks of clinging to views is pointed to being in quarrels and disputes, being in contention with people, so non-harmony with people through clinging to views. The very first mention of views in the text comes in Sutta number three. And here's the verse on page six. Now, how would one, led on by desire, entrenched in his likes, forming his own conclusions, overcome his own views? He'd dispute in line with the way that he knows. So I think this verse has two teachings in it. And I'll talk about one of them now and one of them later. This verse implies that because of desire, view gets in the way of seeing clearly. So led on by desire, entrenched in light, how would one overcome your own views? Essentially that because of our views, we dispute or we uh, have contention with people based on what we already know. So again, it's pointing to the dispute as being a a result of views and a problem with views. So this is not supposed to be an answer to the question. It's more of the it is. I believe it is more of the question. Yeah. And although, I mean, um, I I think I think it can also be seen as. Um, what, what is the way out? I mean, we are entrenched in our own views, right? How do we get out of it? Partly, I think it's through having a view that leads us to the end of views. So that's, and that's, I, I think that partly that's what it's pointing to here. No, no other commentator I read points that out, but, <laughs> but I, th- I think that it's actually pointing to that a little bit here. That the, the way out, I mean, it's, it, we can get entrenched in our views, but if there is a view that leads us in the direction of letting go of views, then we can, we can um, become free. So go ahead. What's another translation? Uh, I'll read Norman's. So another translation of that. How could anyone overcome his very own view when he is led on by desire, bent on his own inclination, perfecting these wrong views himself? For as he knows, so would he speak. So that's that's a little more clear that the problem is being led by desire and bent by inclination. 
it also has. It also sounds like that second part is just restating the problem and not 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 answering the not question. Answering the question how yes. for yourself, but just more like how could you do that? You're just going to do that. You're just going to do that, right? That sort of phrase. Right. Can you say a little bit more about just how you understand views themselves, how they might be different from perceptions, the aggregate? Because um, we're, t- we're moving along here as if we all sort of know That's true. what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, the, the way I understand view, I mean, it has so many different levels to it. And I think it's talking about all the different levels of views, where the most subtle kind of view, I think, is the belief or the, the view I am. Um, and the um, you know next layer perhaps being views of particular identities. You know, I am a miserable person. I'm a happy person. Um, I like to do these kinds of things. I don't like to do those kind of things. More the personality part of it, but but the the view I am being a more subtle form of it. And then any kind of view at all, a view of um, um, some kind of thought that such and such is good or such and such is bad or um, a belief that something, a perception is a certain thing. I I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but I think it's good to to bring it in now. So, um, for instance, I'll give an example from a time on retreat that I I saw how a belief or a view could impact my perception. Perception I take to be basically the bare, um, the perception is the um, recognition of something. And perception also has many layers. So, for instance, perception can just simply be form, color, shape for the visual field. You know, that there's gray and brown and square and flat and that kind of thing. And then it can also be chair rug that's also perception i think that does that's not that could be view in a sense but i'm thinking more of that as perception that view begins to come in with more opinions about like that's a good chair for sitting or that's an appropriate kind of carpet or you know something like that where that's more where the view comes in and how views and, and perception impact each other or kind of can interweave. Um, and the example uh, from my retreat, I was in a monastery in Burma, pretty near the monastery wall where the village, the village was right on the other side of the monastery wall. And every evening I heard a squealing sound. I believed I that perception came in and the thing that it got recognized as perceived as was a pig. And the squealing, I believed, was due to the fact that these pigs were being slaughtered. I thought that there was a uh, a butcher shop on the other side of that wall. So every evening that belief being there the pigs being slaughtered, being the view, created a response in my heart when I heard the squealing. It created the sense of compassion for the pigs being slaughtered. One night I was out walking 
and I noticed bats flying at sundown and heard the squealing and recognized that the squealing I had been hearing was from bats, not from pigs. So the perception had been wrong, and the view that had been formed on that perception was wrong, and it impacted my experience of the um, the squealing. It now became just neutral. So that's you know that's kind of the interweaving between view and perception, and how um, percept view colors what we see. So I don't know if that does that. Do you think that clarifies a little bit what I mean by view or what I understand view to mean? I mean, I think we all have to come to our own understanding of it. Um. I guess perception for me includes even perception of abstractions. Like, give me an example. Uh, Governor of Alaska. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Is a perception. Yeah, well, like chair or book is is also a perception, right. and that's a, a concept. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's true too. I, I take that. So, for instance, my perception of pig, I actually take that as a perception. It was an erroneous perception, but it was a perception. The view um, was, or the belief was, that the pig was being slaughtered. You know. For me, the perception was the sound. Well, that's the view was, oh, that's a pig. Yeah, but the, the sound. Think of what Tony said, Governor of Alaska. Did it have some cringing <laughs> in us or this? <laughs> Governor of Alaska. <laughs> Something like that. So I think that was a great example. <laughs> Attachment to a view, because what I said was Governor of Alaska. <laughs> and if you thought I knew it was me, I didn't even think who the Governor of Alaska was, but the mind would be. It was like immediate like that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, the, um, now the perception is based on the sense input. You know, so, you know, seeing, like, I mean, this example is used a lot, you know, this is brown, round, and we think of it as a bell, but it could also be thought of as an alms bowl, you know, so the perception of it is, I mean, the the perception of what it is varies, but I still think of those things as perception, you know, it it partly depends on how it's being used. If somebody is carrying it around, it's an alms bowl. If somebody is using it to strike, it's a bell. So, um, an example would be we know it as a bell, and on the bell, and we'll have an opinion of that. We know it as that, it's a view. But what if we found out, looking underneath it, that this is a chamber pot? People <laughs> manufactured that, this is many for. We have this view, it's a bat. And I think that's what teachings are getting to is, is we lock on to things being a certain way because another always certain things so it's always built uh built capital this is an infinite way of looking at things but we 
I think that's a very interesting point, just to restate for the, the recording, um, that we, we often lock onto a perception as being what something is. So we lock onto this as being either bell or alms bowl, or as Steve pointed out, it might say chamber pot on the bottom, so that we then lock onto that as being what it is, and that that's the view, actually, the locking on to that. That's an interesting distinction, you know, that um, if we say, oh, this is a bell, it is nothing other than a bell, that's a view. If we say provisionally it's a bell, sometimes it might be a um, alms bowl or a chamber pot, then it's, it's more um, how it's being used and perceived at the time. Go ahead, Chris. What? just going to say even more radically as soon as you say it is you've kind of gone into view other than just what Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as soon as you assert to yourself it is well although i mean i think i think there's i think there's probably a range you know it's like between perception and um view yeah but you have the perception without saying to yourself it is is. without the follow-on thought Mm. it is and Mm. it's just a thought anyway you're going to be careful because now we're making of views attachment to views. <laughs> we'll go into that in great detail. <laughs> so basically, for the sake of this discussion, let's talk about views as being opinions about something. That, and, and see if we can kind of make a distinction between a perception of something and a view and begin to notice when we might be turning a perception into a view. That might be an interesting way to, to think about it. Perceptions can be more Well, perception. Um, I don't know by definition. By the word for view? View is what? Um, Ditty. <laughs> what is the what is the poly for view? It is ditty. Perception. Perception is sanya, right? So they're different. They're definitely different concepts. But again, you know, the Buddha I think often used concepts that could kind of flow into each other. And like you know, when talking about the five aggregates, what a human was composed of, you know, he called them the aggregates. But the term he used was kanda, which basically means heap or bundle. You know, it's not a technical term. It's not something, it's kind of like, well, you know, everything's kind of piled in these heaps. And, well, if it doesn't fit there, then let's put it there. You know, so I don't think he was quite necessarily so rigid as the Abhidhamma became. <laughs> you know, that, um, that I think there, there may have been a little more fluidity in his understanding. The aggregates of clinging. The aggregates. Yes, yes. We, as Tony says, that when we cling to the aggregates, perception is one of those aggregates. We can cling to perception as well as clinging to views. That is true. We can cling to feeling. We can cling to perception. um, We can cling to formations. All of it. That's the whole thing. Is the I mean, when the Buddha defines dukkha. And he gives examples, and the last one, he says, clinging to the five aggregates is dukkha. And so you take the five aggregates and you have, you have an opinion, and that's yourself. And you put it all together. 
<laughs> so the um, the drawbacks to clinging to views are shown by described by what's happening happens to somebody who clings to views again very much in this world. So um, looking at these verses on page six, dependent on what is seen, heard, cognized upon or upon moral conduct and religious practices, a person shows contempt for others. Abiding by his fixed opinions and pleased with himself, he says, my opponent's a fool. He is no expert. So the, again, the drawback being a kind of contentiousness with people. And I also think that what it's showing is how we can recognize in ourselves when we are clinging to views. If we are in contention with people, if we're in some kind of quarrel with people, there's a clinging to a view. It's kind of like warning, warning. You know, this is <laughs> this is this is where we know we're clinging to views. If there's a contention with people, we're clinging to views. And that's that's shown over and over again. Upon whatever basis he regards his opponent a fool is the same upon which he regards himself an expert. To the extent to which he rates himself an expert, he despises anyone else who makes the same claim. In his own overrested opinion, he is perfected, drunk with pride. He supposes he is fully accomplished. In his mind, he consecrates both himself and his opinions as perfected. So these being some of the drawbacks of clinging to views. And again, it's in some ways, you know, the, what he's saying here goes against at least our culture. I don't know if it, go, if it goes if it went against his own culture. But, you know, having strong views and being able to state who you are and what you believe in and state it with clarity, that is valued in our culture. And I think in some ways it was valued in the Buddhist time. I mean, at least they talk about having these you know, debates over Dharma points and the, that the um, the person who's clearest in their description is the one who, who is right. You know, I don't know exactly how it went, but um, I think also in the Buddhist day, there was that kind of valuing of knowing what you knew and being able to state it and... Um, in this last one here, um, the 847. For one free of passion towards perception, there are no ties. For one released through wisdom, there are no illusions. Those attached to perception and views roam the world offending people. So here he puts the two together in a sentence. <laughs> and I like that, you know, roam the world offending people. <laughs> Where's the, the other? Um, oh, okay. Related to what you were saying about uh, having a strong view being valued in our culture, I, I've heard Gill say um, that it's fine to have a view and to state it clearly. You know, you can have a real lively debate with someone and then let go. Yeah. You know, yeah. that it's not, it's, that it's, it's not that it's bad to have that clear view, but again, as we've been saying, the clinging to it. Yes. So you can have it and state it and then let go. And that's, that's one of the very interesting explorations of views in this text. Um, and we'll, we'll get into just that, um, that kind of 
uh, exploration. So here's here's a description of the perspective of someone who has the re- the respect <coughs> from the perspective of liberation, the relationship to views. And this is where it gets a little more inter- interesting. One who is pure has no preconceived view about anything in the world. Having abandoned delusion and pride, he remains without attachment. Therefore, by what view would he go? So here it says that someone who is liberated has no views. Has no views. That's pretty strong. (laughs) One who is attached argues over religious teaching. But how and about what can you argue with one who is without attachment? There is nothing that he can eat that he either takes up or throws off. He is indeed free of every view in the world. Again, no view. Someone who is liberated, no view. Abandoning what he takes up, free of any basis of attachment, he does not rely even upon knowledge. And this is one of those places where knowledge is seen as kind of You know, earlier I talked about knowledge being something that is held up as valuable. Does not rely even on knowledge here. Amongst those in dispute, he does not take sides. He does not revert to any grasping of opinions whatsoever. Now here, in this translation, it at least um, goes to grasping of opinions. Let's see what Norman says. Abandoning what has been taken up and not taking it up again, he would not depend even upon knowledge. He indeed does not follow any faction among those who would hold different views. He does not believe any view at all. So these are some some challenging teachings. And the question, one of the questions that comes up here um, is is this teaching of no views, somebody who's liberated has no views, does this mean that someone who is on the path holds no views? And I'll just leave that out there for now. So as with the sense-desire teaching, one of the main recommendations in the Atakavaga is to avoid the behaviors that would um, manifest if you were attached to views, quarrels and disputes in particular. Over and over again, he recommends staying out of quarrels and disputes. Now, that's a behavioral thing. You know, that's something that we can engage in behaviorally. Now, another point here. Uh, that maybe touches a little bit on what Burgett was saying, is that it does not appear that the issue is whether the views are true or false. It's the clinging to them. And, and some, of the, um, some of the teachings clearly state that it's not the views that are the problem, it is the clinging to them that is the problem. And I think that's probably more the answer in the training part of it, um, and that as we move on to actually letting go of all clinging, perhaps we would end up in a state of having no views, but um, that essentially the, that the, the teaching is also pretty much around not clinging, to, not clinging to views. In the very first 
verse of Sutta 5, which is on page 7. The first half of that, verse 796, which is essentially the first half of that. A person who associates himself with certain views, considering them as best and making them supreme in the world, he says, because of that, all other views are inferior. Therefore, he is not free from contention with others. So in this in this statement, I think it does point to the fact that it doesn't matter whether the view is true or false. If you're holding on to it and evaluating other views as inferior, that is the problem. You're not free from contention if you're clinging to even a true view. Any any thoughts or comments on yeah? Doesn't this get into the issue of the of how to how to relate to the raft? Because isn't it a view that what you just said about views? Yes, yes, yes. This and I'll I'll talk more about that too, um, very shortly. <laughs> and actually, maybe I'll just move on to that now, um, and not go through all of Sutta Five in detail. But I'll just give a little overview of Sutta Five as opposed to going through it in detail. The way I look at Sutta Five. I think it's a very interesting sutta because it seems to go from someone who is attached to views and then it talks a little bit about in the first two verses describe an ordinary person with respect to views. The second two describe a little bit of a training. How does one work with views? Don't depend on what's seen, heard, cognized or on ritual observances. Don't present yourself as equal to. The next two views could be training or could describe someone who is already liberated. And the last two clearly to me describe someone who is already liberated. So to me, it kind of follows the progression of someone's attachment to views through the sutta. So you might want to kind of look through it yourself. But since we only have 45 minutes, let's just move on. (laughs) Yeah. This is reminding me of, of um, Zen teachings on emptiness, like whatever that means. <laughs> in what in what way? Um, well, I'm not exactly clear on on what I mean by that, except for that I'm that there's sort of an ultimate emptiness to everything, and um, you know this form and emptiness is kind of like interchangeable. Um, movement between the two, but um, you know, th- does that does that mean anything to anybody? I'm I'm not seeing the how you're connecting this teaching on no views and clinging to views to that. So I'm not I'm not completely uh, clear on um, what you're saying how how it's connected. Well. Um, Well, uh, because um, I don't, I'm not able to articulate it right now. It's, okay. it's about how views are essentially empty, I guess. Is oh, what I'm okay, saying. okay, yeah, uh huh, yes, yes, uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
I mean, like one of the things Tan Jeff likes to say is that ultimately what we need to see is that a view is nothing more than an arising phenomenon, that it is a product of causes and conditions, and that it is just like everything else. It is just a, 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 um, an arising phenomenon that will disappear, and that that is all that views are. And essentially that, you know, holding that kind of a view is the view that leads to the end of views. And if we can hold the view that views are phenomena that arise that are subject to stress, that is the view that will lead us to the end of, of stress. So let's just let's just talk a little bit about some of these implications. Um, so I've, I've mentioned a little bit earlier that um, the teaching that one who is free, that one who's already uh, liberated, does not cling to any views whatsoever or perhaps does not even have views, brings up the question of views, the reliance on views to actually attain liberation. Now, does the Ataka Bhagat actually teach or proclaim that the path includes not holding any view at all? Some say yes, that it is that radical of a teaching. And essentially, to some extent, the Mahayana teachings follow this kind of path. You know, there are some Mahayana teachings that proclaim the Buddha never taught anything. He, did, he didn't teach anything. Um, you know, that essentially they are falling down so strongly on the side of no view being the path as well as the result. So um, I do not believe that it is that strong in my read of this. Now, now Grace Burford thinks it is that strong. She actually argues that it is that strong of a teaching. But then she comes to the conclusion that it's a useless teaching. You know, that, that if a path is one that has no views, then how does one even follow it? How does one do anything with that? So she ends up backing off and saying, well, you know, maybe it could be a provisional thing that we hold certain views for a while and then we move on. But she feels that that actually compromises the radical notion of these teachings. But I don't actually think that it is teaching that. One of the ways in which Tan Jeff, again, recommended reading this um, text that I followed, I mentioned earlier, that um, to look at where it's speaking about someone who's liberated and someone who is on the path to liberation. As far as I can tell, all but one that I can read, all but one of the suttas that describe someone who is has no views are talking about someone who is already liberated or someone who has not clinging to views, either has no views or is not clinging to views. That person is already liberated. And the one verse that is questionable to me is in that sutta number five, where it's kind of in the transition place between the training and the person who is free from views. And I think it's, it's a little ambiguous there, but it could be read as, again, describing someone who is already liberated. So you might want to make your own evaluation of the text on these lines and see what you think. Does this teaching actually teach 
that someone who is in training holds no views at all. How do you distinguish between holding a view and believing a view and clinging to a view? I guess the way I would distinguish it, I'm um, holding a view might be to, to use, the, use it, but not necessarily to... Um, um, essentially, you know, if you have the view that we have to let go of all views ultimately, then we know that we have to let go of that view too. I mean, it's kind of inherent in the in that that we have to let go of that view too. So that would would, would be holding the view. Believing a view would mean this is right, nothing else is. I mean, believing that view is right, nothing else is right. As opposed to, and Joseph often speaks about the usefulness of teaching, the skillful means. Holding something is a skillful means versus believing it. Um, and I would look at the belief as being the clinging. And the, be, believing and clinging, I think, may go together. Although perhaps belief could be a little bit less than clinging. You might believe, I mean, like, Presumably, the Buddha believed his teaching was true. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, the the that that part I'm not as clear on. But but the belief meaning this is right, nothing else is right. So I'd like to at least leave open for this discussion the possibility that. Using views, it's helpful to hold a view in order to overcome views. And I'd like to talk a little bit about paradox, because this is an inherently paradoxical teaching, or inherently kind of paradoxical statement. Yeah, the, the mic. So has anybody made any comments about right views? Because the first... The first uh Part of the Eightfold Path is right view. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about right view um, later. Certainly that's, I mean, it's, right view is not mentioned in the Atakavaga, which is why I'm not really h- highlighting on it. Four Noble Truths is not in the Atakavaga. Eightfold Path is not on the Atakavaga. It really looks like a pretty early teaching of just like, do these things, don't do these things. It's, you know, and that it, it got much more clarified later on as to what are skillful means in um, approaching uh, liberation. So in my, in my view, right view has many layers also. I'll talk about that a little bit later. So paradox. So there's the, the couple of paradoxes in these teachings, two, two main ones that kind of are highlighted here is this view of clinging to no views or the, the it's sometimes called the no views view. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> um, and then the desire to eliminate desire. You know, that essentially there's a form of desire that would have to come to eliminate desire. So there's kind of a paradoxical nature to these teachings. And I want to talk a little bit about the nature of paradox from a mathematical perspective. I was a mathematician in a former life. And um, from a mathematical perspective, a statement about a class of things that is 
that, that where the statement is actually one of that class. I don't know if that makes sense yet, but so a statement about a class of things where the statement itself is one of that class is inherently paradoxical. So in this case, a statement about views is also a view. So in that case, it has the capacity to be inherently paradoxical. So the classic, um, the classic paradox that's used in exploring paradox is called the liar paradox. I always lie. If that statement is, if I always lie, that statement is false, which means that the statement is true. If I always lie is, is uh, true, it means that, so anyway, <laughs> you get the idea. <laughs> That you're not always a liar. It's true, so you're not always a liar. So it's inherently contradictory. And the teachings, the teaching of no views is that kind of a paradox. And from a mathematical perspective, and this is the part I like about them looking at this from a mathematical point of view, the only way to resolve such paradoxes is to step out of the system in which the paradox is defined. So in this case, the, the way to resolve this paradox around no views is to step out of the framework of views, to step out of the framework of concepts and beliefs. So I think that's a very interesting um, pointer for us. So there are a number of these kinds of paradoxes that are in the teaching here. The Buddha um, is talking to someone, and we'll go through this sutta in a moment. The Buddha is talking to someone, and um, he says, you know, you should not quarrel. You know, quarrels is a manifestation of someone who's attached to views. And then in the very next sentence, it looks like he's quarreling with someone. He's stating his view and stating that the person is a fool, in which, you know, earlier he said anybody who calls their opponent a fool is attached to views. So there's some ways in which the teachings here are very confusing, paradoxical. And um, it, I'll just quote a little bit of Tan Jeff here. The Ataka sometimes presents these paradoxes in as mystifying a manner as possible. In fact, some of the paradoxes, particularly the discussion of abandoning clinging to views, are stated in terms so stark that on the surface they are hard to reconcile with the teachings in the other, other Pali discourses or with other passages in the Ataka itself. The question is thus whether these paradoxes should be taken at face value or further interpreted. So by taking them at face value, I take as meaning you know, not going outside of the system. Further interpreted meaning, okay, let's step outside of the system a little bit and explore what's what's being said. So Tan Jeff suggests that the evidence weighs down pretty heavily on the side that the meaning of these paradoxes should be explored or further drawn out. That in, in a number of places in the, the, the Pali canon, there are these kind of terse little statements that people end up like, what is he saying? And then they wander off and find some monk who's good at explaining the discourses. And then he expounds for, you know, pages. And then people understand what the Buddha meant by this 
three-sentence remark. So the, the Tanjef says that a lot of what is said in the Atakavaga falls in that kind of camp, that we have to further explore or further understand what's happening here or further evaluate, uh, draw out the meaning is the term often used in the suttas. So part of the reason he thinks that uh, the evidence falls more heavily on this side, I'll, I'll give you a few of the reasons he, he um, uses. The first being one I mentioned earlier, that a view of no views as a path is pretty impractical. It's hard to follow a view of no views. Such a path of holding no views is inconsistent with the teachings in the Atakavaga to, that say clearly there are some skillful things to do to free ourselves from clinging. It's pretty clear in the Atakavaga. He, he gives some, some very clear statements on you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you should avoid sense pleasures. He talks about many things that we should do. So the text as a whole makes more sense if the paradoxes around not clinging to views are explored for meanings that aren't quite so obvious on the surface. And the early Buddhist tradition itself saw the text in this way. So the Mahanidesa essentially being a description, you know, a whole uh, sutta that describes kind of word by word what is meant here that there was a way in which the Mahanidesa was attempting to draw out the meaning for this text. The other um, piece of evidence that Tanjef uses to support this argument that we should draw out the meaning is that the very way that the poems are created follow the style of a... um, uh, an Indian, an ancient Indian genre of um, philosophical enigma in which the exploration of the text through reflection to further draw out the meaning was actually seen as a way of uh, transforming the mind. So, and here again to quote uh, Tan Jeff, that students of, this enig- of these enigmas, and this is a Vedic tradition apparently, not necessarily a Buddhist tradition, and I'm not sure it was actually in force at the time of the Buddha or not, but um, Tanjef claims that there's a lot of not only this form of the philosophical enigma, but that the poems themselves use a lot of wordplay and puns that... Um, um, where there can be multiple different layers of interpretation or ways in which the words are used to shock the mind. So he says that the idea of this is to get students to think outside the box in the justified belief that the process of searching for inspiration and being illuminated by the answer would transform the mind in a much deeper way than would be achieved simply by absorbing information. 
The Ataka stands at the head of a long line of Buddhist texts, both Theravada and not, that use wordplay with a serious purpose to teach the reader to think independently, to see through the uncertainties of language, and so help to loosen any clinging to structures that language imposes on the mind. So he's suggesting that the very form of the enigma of this of the text is one to help kind of break ourselves out of the system, essentially, as Tanjeff says, to think outside the box. So in a way, it's kind of a koan practice. I look at it as like, you know, this an early kind of koan practice. So are there any thoughts or comments here at this point? Okay. <laughs> So let's look at one of these um, kind of deeper paradoxes here. In the Ninth Sutta, the Mangandiya Sutta, the background for this sutta is that Magandiya has come to the Buddha to offer him his daughter and said, take my daughter. And the Buddha, in kind of what seems to be unkind terms, basically calls his daughter a bag of filth, (laughs) something like that, wrapped up in skin. Um, So the interaction may not have got uh, started off on a very good foot. So the uh, Magandiya asks the Buddha, so what do you mean by somebody who is pure then? Because he says, I'm, I'm, I can't remember, let's see, what is, how does he begin the, So Magandiya says, if you do not want this jewel, then what views, precepts, practices, livelihood, and rebirth do you proclaim? So he wants to know, what does the Buddha proclaim? And uh, for a little further on in the discussion, the Buddha says, I think this is Tan Jeff's, is this Tan Jeff's translation? I, um, does it say whose translation this is in, in your version? Oh, Verado, okay. So we'll explore um, a couple translations. So the Buddha says, one is not called pure because of one's views, learning, knowledge, or precepts and practices, nor because of one's lack of views, learning, knowledge, or precepts and practices. But by letting these go, not grasping at them, at peace, emancipated, one no longer hungers for existence. So this is kind of paradoxical. He says it's not because of views, it's not because of lack of views, it's not because of learning or lack of learning. And Makandiya points this out. He says, if one is not called pure because of one's views, learning, knowledge, or precepts or practices, nor because of one's lack of views, learning, knowledge, or precepts or practices, it seems to me this Dhamma is confused. For some realize purity because of their views. The Buddha responds, Asking questions that are based on an opinion, bewildered by what you are attached to, you cannot apprehend the simplest notion of what I am talking about. Therefore, you think this Dhamma is confused. Now, there are ways in which people have interpreted this to basically the Buddha saying, well, he's calling Magandiya a fool. You know, you can't apprehend what I'm talking about. I ran this by Gil, and he says, I don't know, it sounds like the Buddha's being pretty reasonable here. He's just stating what he sees. So there are different opinions on, on how to, to see this particular 
um, teaching. But let's go back to that first verse, which is really where Magandia got confused and where we could potentially get confused and um, and look at what it means. One is not called pure because of one's views, nor because of one's lack of views. What does that mean? Tan Jeff um, really highlights this in his uh, in his translation. He has extensive notes on this particular verse, and he says that there's a difference in the poly between the first set of words and the second set of words, a different in the case that's used for those nouns. Where in the first set, um, the, the first half of it, one is not called pure because of one's views, learning, knowledge, precepts, or practices, that that is put in the instrumental case, which has the sense of by means of or because of, but Tanjeff also claims it has an idiomatic meaning in terms of. The second half of the sentence for lack of you, lack of knowledge, etc., are in the ablative case, which again carries the meaning because of or from. So there's a way in which they sound very similar. But Tanjeff points to the idiomatic meaning of in terms of in the first part to say that we don't describe purity in terms of views, learning, knowledge. And yet we can't attain purity without them. So that that begins to point to this using views, learning, knowledge but not attaching to them, not um, that essentially that ultimately the purity is in the letting go of all things, as I talked about at the very beginning, that in, to become purified, we can't uh, add views, add knowledge. We have to let go of everything. And yet there's a way in which um, we can use views, learning, knowledge, in order to let go of them. Does that make sense? Are you following the the logic of Tom Jeff's argument? How about if I use an analogy? (laughs) Because there's another analogy in the suttas that that kind of um, relates to this. And Tom Jeff even claims that the whole uh, sutta on the relay chariots could be used as a um, commentary to this sutta or this verse even that could be used as a commentary to this verse. So the relay chariots analogy is um, the analogy is someone gets from point A to point B by means of a series of relays. So there's a chariot. He, he embarks on chariot the first chariot, and then at a certain staging point, he gets off that chariot and gets on to the next one, and so on and so forth. He goes on, getting off a chariot and onto the next, and off a chariot and onto the next, and off a chariot and onto the next. And so he arrives at his end destination, having come from, by means of this last chariot. Let's see if I can find the... 
So the question, the question being to somebody who has done this, if that person were asked, did you come from point A to the inner palace door or to, to point B by means of this relay chariot that you have disembarked from? How should the person answer in order to reply truthfully? And he says, well, in order to reply truthfully, he should say, well, at point A, I got on Relay Chariot 1, and then I got off, and then I got on Relay Chariot 2, and then I got off, and then I got on 3, and got off. And so I did not arrive here um, completely by means of this one chariot. There have been a series of stages that have been gone through to get there. So that's a kind of a, a, a similar point that... Um, in order to get to freedom, there are some pieces that we need to use, but we have to let go at each stage to get to the next, to the next, to the next. Another analogy Tan Jeff likes to do, use that I think is very helpful is a way to clarify the difference between the means to get to a goal and the goal. So, for instance, he says the path to get to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon. And yet you go to the Grand Canyon by means of the path. But you don't confuse the Grand Canyon with the path. So that the, the knowledge, the learning, the precepts and practices, the, 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 the result is not defined in terms of those. That is perhaps the means, which is what the last part of that sentence states that it's not because of the lack of these. You need to use these things to get to the goal. So you need to walk on the path in order to get to the Grand Canyon. But once you're at the Grand Canyon, the path is kind of irrelevant in some ways. Just a, a question. I think it's kind of fashionable these days in several different situations, contexts, uh, to speak of, you know, the journey is the same as the goal. I mean, that's really a popular idea. It's, My wife, yes. for example, has used that one on me. And um, <laughs> and yet it sounds like right here, maybe that's certainly needs some unpacking. I think it needs some unpacking for sure, because um, there are ways in which the Atakavaga does teach behave like a person who is free as part of the path. So essentially, you know, if you want to be peaceful, behave peacefully. If you want to um, be free of um, anger, don't quarrel with people. You know, so there is a way in which the path models the result. But I think there are also some ways in which the path does not resemble the uh, the end of the path. And I think this is one of the key ways, this um, the clinging uh, to views, that essentially, to some extent, we have to use views. I think in order to make sense of this teaching, to some extent, we have to use views in order to walk the path, that it doesn't make sense unless we have hold some kind of view that certain things are skillful, certain things are unskillful. This being one of the first parts of right view what's skillful and what's unskillful. 
I feel like I've been living through a live example of this the last few months because I keep having these opinions coming up, things I want to say, and then you just say them, and it's just as well I didn't say them, but, you know, all these kind of ways I want to chip into the conversation. But because I have the overall view that, you know, I shouldn't be kind of all hung up on my own opinions, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing that. But it's a little uncomfortable, so I'm just sitting here having the view that it's good to just watch how uncomfortable it is to want to, you know, be smart and say things. And so... So I'm, I'm just sitting here with that discomfort, and I'm, I've done this before, and I know that the discomfort is interesting, and it subsides, and that after a while, it's, you know, the tendency to do that gets less over time. So I feel like this is an example of, you know, working with views through a view. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I, that's not my understanding of what liberation would be, that it wouldn't be so much agitation and clinging and desire to say things, you know, but that the path to it is through this view of not. Obviously, I lost this battle, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that that actually you point to something else that's really beautiful. You just reminded me of is that I think a lot of the path does have to do with feeling this agitation. And that isn't what we would think about as being the result. And yet it's a huge part of the path. That's where you see the danger. Yeah. But I think, too, we confuse at times. We, we get this misunderstanding that, oh, if I'm mindful of it, it means it won't feel agitating anymore. So therefore, if I'm feeling agitated, I'm doing something wrong. You know, we, we also have that view a lot. And, you know, it's I think it's a lot of it is just being with the agitation and seeing that we can't let go. It's like, you know, we don't know how to let go sometimes. Steve, yeah, use the mic. It's an interesting point because one thing I've learned with my, I don't know, 20 years of practice or so is the thing that always get, that always causes me to get stuck is having some view on what practice is. Well, I, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later on, um, that, you know, how we begin to unwind these things, um, you know, as, as we go. It's, I, I think of it as layers. You know, that we, we start with the outermost layers of clinging, and then we begin to see what are, are the things that are contributing to that clinging, some of them being views. And then we, we drop into a deeper level, and then we find out we're clinging at that level too, and oh, what are the views that are holding me together here? You know, so it's, it, it does. I think we, when we see the suffering around something, or we, we, when we begin to see the um, contentiousness it's like, okay, what, what is it? You know, if I'm, if I'm suffering, there's clinging somewhere. What, what is it? So it becomes the pathway. The observation of suffering becomes the pathway. Anything else? I'm, yeah, Steve. I mean, Jim. <laughs> um, also, when you were talking about the thing with views, it reminded me of something Tan Jeff talked about of it like climbing a ladder that you let you you let go of a, a less skillful view and hold on to a more skillful view and then as mm-hmm. you go up the ladder you're continually grabbing something that's going to be more skillful yep, yep. and letting go of something that's less skillful so it's not like you start going up the ladder and then you just let go and fall to the ground, but that it, that it requires a progression of going to increasingly more skillful views yes. until you reach the point where 
you can let go of all views. I, I think that's right. I, th- I, I think um, that's a beautiful analogy. It's, it's very, very visceral. <laughs> um, so I think that's that's very similar to that relay chariots kind of analogy. And I think it also points to the the way in which we kind of layer, go through different layers, and we see, okay, what am I clinging to at this level, and then let go of that, and what's the next thing? And and it's it's skillful as long as it's not in the way, and then so, at some point we'll start to see where there starts to be friction around a particular holding, and then that's when we go to the next rung of the ladder. There's actually another sutta that um, that actually this came up in in a conversation Anandapindika had with with some some monks, and he was asked by no not monks it was it was some people of other other sects sects, and they came to him and said. Tell us, tell us what views the, the Buddha has. And Ananda Pindika replies, well, I don't know entirely what views the Buddha has. I like that response. So tell us what views you have. And, and Ananda Pindika says, well, if you tell me what views you have, then I'll tell you what views I have. So um, they went off and telling, telling him, oh, I've got the view. The cosmos is finite. The cosmos is infinite. The cosmos is not eternal. This is the view I have. Nothing, you know. Uh, only this is true. Anything else is worthless. So that being part of their view. When he heard this, Anandapindika said, as for the venerable one who says the cosmos is eternal, only this is true. Anything else is worthless. His view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. Now, this view has been brought into being. It is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Thus, the venerable one adheres to that very stress, submits to that very stress. So here he's talking about very much that views are a part of this you know, mental formation. It is something that's fabricated, something that comes into being through our minds. And by holding on to that, you're holding on to something that's inconstant, subject to disappearance, and that itself is stress. It's suffering to hold on to something that is subject to disappearance. So then the um, wanderer, he, he disputed all of the claims of the wanderers in this fashion. And they come back to him and said, okay, well, now we've told you what our views are. You tell, you tell me, yes, us what your view is. And Anandapindika says, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. And they say, well, you know. You too adhere to that very view. You too cling to that very stress. And he said, well, whatever's been brought into being is fabricated, etc. Whatever is stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment, I discern the higher escape from it as it is actually present. So this is clearly describing using a view to overcome views. Clearly describing the view or one of the views that can be used 
on the path to let go of views. That is Anguttara Nikaya 1093, the Ditti Sutta, the Views Sutta. So I like I like that one. Which the, the very part, the last part. So they say I'll I'll read the last two paragraphs. So they say to him, so householder. Because Ananda Pindaka is a householder. I like that too about this teaching. I like the fact that Ananda Pindaka is a householder. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. You thus adhere to that very stress. Submit yourself to that very stress. Ananda Pindaka replies, Venerable sirs, Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment as it is actually present, as it actually is present, I think that's the key. That's talking about seeing the arising of a phenomena in the present moment. I also discern the higher escape from it as it is actually present. So that that form essentially is what I think the Atakavaga is teaching. It is talking about a form of a view that will allow us to become free of views. Would it not be possible to to see that as stepping outside the box? Essentially, as, it, it as is. actually not. I mean, as you read that, I think, is that really a view? In a way, it's not a view. It's a direct experience. The, the way he, well, he, he said initially, I hold this as a view. Mm. And then he said, and I use it in my direct experience. So, yeah, that is the stepping outside the box, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Going back to this Sutta 9, the first, mm-hmm. 839, um, you were saying and you were quoting Tanjeff uh, about using a view to to get beyond views, which all makes sense to me, and, and I understand that, accept that. But as I read that, that's not what I read. <laughs> okay. Um, but by letting go not grasping at them at peace, emancipated one no longer hungers for existence. Again, I was thinking of that as stepping outside the box rather than using the view to to get beyond the view. But how do, you, how do you step outside the box without having the box to step outside of? So essentially you need something to... I, mean, I, I don't think you can kind of just immediately step outside the box. I mean, there are people, I think, that kind of have that kind of enlightenment yeah, experience. Yeah. But most of us, but I think, need something to rub our experience up against and a view that all formations are in constant stress and eventually beginning to be able to see, oh, even this view is one of those formations. Yeah. It too is subject to inconstancy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I'm struck by the last piece, one no longer hungers for existence. Mm-hmm. That seems um We'll talk about that more. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah, I got a whole a whole talk on that part too. Although you might miss you might miss part of it. <laughs> um, it will be recorded. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? We have just a few more minutes, and I I do want to, yeah, Tony. This discussion reminds me of a, of a piece of installation art I saw by a guy named Bruce Nauman. It's two rooms, but, but, but oh, 10 feet cubes, each with a door in the side, connected to each other. The second one connected to the first by the door. You walk in, and in the middle of the first room is a pedestal with instructions. And the instructions are, imagine yourself in the second room. And then the second instruction is go into the second room and assume the position, take the place you imagined yourself to be. And when you go in the second room, it's just totally different from whatever you imagined it to be. Uh-huh. But what we're doing is looking for an instruction about how to get someplace without instructions. Yes, and where we can't imagine that's right. where we're going to be. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. Where was that? That was. Uh, was it a piece of installation art that he that he did? But where did you see it? I haven't. I haven't seen it. I just. Oh, you've heard about it. it. I see. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. That sounds cool. <laughs> well, we could we can break for lunch. I'm hungry, so why don't we uh, have some lunch? We'll, and we'll come back at. Um, 11 at 1:30